Well, let's get into the Word this morning, and let's open our Bibles today again to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. We are studying this book, calling this series, Last Words for the Last Days. Last Words for the Last Days. This is the third installment. I don't know how many more we may have, but uh, we are walking through this. I feel like that's the direction the Lord wanted us to go, and we're taking uh, some time to look at some details along the way that are helping us because these are uh, Peter's last words written and recorded that we know of. And of course they were words that were his last, but they were also, they're also in this book, we'll get to it, some words about the last days. And so that's why we have this title, Last Words for the Last Days. Now scholars tell us that Peter wrote this letter from prison in Rome shortly before he was executed by the emperor Nero. And Nero lived to 58 AD, so it was sometime probably close to that when, when he would have given his life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus. And by the way, uh, when you run into folks who are kind of skeptical about Christianity and about the veracity of the Bible, the scriptures, I think it's interesting to note that most people are not willing to lay down their life for anything they know to be a lie. Most people are not willing to be a martyr for something that they know is not true. Peter knew what was going on. The prophecy of Jesus that when he is old, he would be led where he didn't want to go, well, that was coming to pass because, you know, you don't really want to go to prison and you don't really want to go to the uh, place of execution, but he was willing to give his life uh, as a martyr for Jesus Christ. And he knew when he wrote this letter that he was leaving soon. Now these are words, uh, some last words from a Jewish man who though he was not well or highly educated, he was just as all Jewish boys would have been made aware of in their youth, he was familiar with the realities of heaven, the realities of hell, the realities of judgment, and the reality of eternity. If there was ever a time that a believer would be honest, believing that he's going to meet the Lord when this is over, it would be now when you're giving your last words. And so these words, though they are brief, this letter isn't long, only three chapters, they are filled with powerful truths that Peter wanted us to know and he wanted us to believe just as he did. Now last time, last week, we looked at the things that we need to add to our faith. And we went down that list. And you remember he said, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, temperance to temperance, um, uh, patience into patience, godliness into godliness, brotherly kindness into brotherly kindness, charity and so forth. And uh, so we, we talked about each of those and covered those, and that's all recorded. You can listen to that if you'd like to. We would love for you to if you didn't get to hear it. But we want to move on today because he continues to move and uh, starts shifting in his talking to us and, and shifting in his word to us by saying concerning these things we need to add, in verse 8, if you look there with me, Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 8 we will begin. He says, for if these things, that's all those things we just talked about, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren 
nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things, that's the virtue, temperance, and so forth, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged or cleansed from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. You may have a translation that uses the word glorious, an abundant or glorious uh, entrance, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. So he sounds like he, he, like Paul, believed that there need to be both the planting of the seed and then the watering of the seed. He says, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Think about that. You're established in the truth. You know the truth. But he says, I'm going to remind you again. Obviously, we need to keep hearing over and over and over again truths of the word. He says, yea or yes, I think it meet or fitting proper as long as I'm in this tabernacle, or that he's talking about his body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Let's look to the Lord in prayer for a moment and get into our teaching for the morning. Father, we are grateful, so thankful for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light into our pathway. We choose today to heed your word, to hear it and to do it. We thank you, Lord, that it produces faith so that everything you have promised us, every fact of who we are, what we can do, and what we have in Christ is a reality that by faith we can receive and experience in our lives. Help us, Lord, to do that just a little better and a little more by hearing this word today. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, you'll notice that Peter here brings up something that I know in my lifetime I've lived long enough to, to see that this particular issue has become more prominent and more of an issue within the greater church world than it would have been 20 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago. But he brings up this issue of uh, making your calling and your election sure. Now there's something about knowing you're going to die that makes you want to be sure you're ready. Now we preach a message of life. We talk a lot about the God kind of life. There's a Greek word, zoe, and that's what it means. Life as God has it and life as God knows it. Life in the absolute sense. Life that's so powerful that death cannot stand in its presence. That life force is the force of life that emanates from God himself. That, for instance, causes 
the two uh, folks who went to heaven without yet dying, uh, Enoch and Elijah, to, to remain alive for millenniums inside a body that's not yet been glorified. How's that possible? Because of the life of God. Now, many of us believe that they will uh, come back and they will be, uh, some people believe they're the two witnesses. Others believe that there's one of them is and the other is, and I don't know exactly how all that works. You know, I often have said over the years that I don't care if the Antichrist is in Rustburg. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter because I'm not looking really for him. I am looking for Jesus Christ. Amen. I know him. Hallelujah. <clears throat> anyway, uh, but they cannot die because they're too close to the presence of God. Now, I'm sure they're, they want a glorified body, and I believe for sure they'll get one. But uh, the, the whole point is that's the power of the life of God. And so uh, when people get ready to leave this earth, they want to be able to fully take advantage of the life and the nature of God. There's something about getting older that makes us realize that you only have one shot at this life. And you cannot go back and get what's already passed. Now, when you're 20, that doesn't make a lot of difference to you. But trust me, when you get 40, it'll be significantly different. And when you get 60, it'll be even more significantly different. And when you get to the place that you realize that you have more life behind you than you have in front of you, you say, well, you know, you shouldn't say that. You're a faith man. Listen, if I was at the halfway point right now, that means I'm going to live to be 130. Can you imagine if I lived to be 130? I'd have to wear a false face to come in among you. <laughs> there would be so many wrinkles and so forth and so on. No, I, I'm not really shooting to live to be 130 years old. But I am going to live long, strong, and well on the earth. And I'm going to live till I've finished my course. Now, you may think I'm washed up, but I know I'm not. There's still some more miles to travel. There's still some more things to do. There's still some more to learn, some, still some more to communicate. And so, uh, but I do know that, that most of my life now is behind me rather than in front of me. And so with each passing year, it becomes more important to me to be in the will of God. Now, a lot of times people ask about, you know, uh, are we in the last days? Well, I personally believe that we are. However, you're in your last days. I mean, whether you're 14 or 84, you're, this is it. This is life here. You have one shot, as I said, to get this thing right. Because all of eternity... Your place, your position in what Peter referred to as the everlasting kingdom, all of that is determined by here and now. Your trial period, if you will, for ruling and reigning. You know, if we can't reign over our body, how would we think that God would put us in a position to reign and rule over great, vast places of authority in the new heaven and the new earth. I've joked for years sometimes saying, you know, I want to be the governor of Virginia when we come back. 
I'm about to up it to the president. <laughs> I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger said the other day he could be president if he wasn't uh, uh, born in Austria instead of America. Well, my goodness, if, if it's good enough for Arnold, it's good enough for me. <laughs> so when I leave this earth, I can say, I'll be back. I don't know what my position will be. I'm sure I'll be happy with it. But I know that I am working now through my faithfulness and my obedience. I am working on the position I'll be in. I'm not working to get saved. That's settled. And a lot of people have this idea, you know, well, if I can just make it in. No, that's not really what you want. I remember a lady used to sing a song in a church we went to many years ago. I may not be the first one in the kingdom. I'll be glad if I can only make it in. Well, I've decided I don't like that song. I don't want to just barely get in. I want to I want to get in there and hear him say, "Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. That's all he asked for. I'll make you ruler over many things." Praise the Lord. And so when you get to the end of life and especially as Peter would have been evidently very close, knowing that he was very close to, to leaving this world, um, it becomes important that we settle the issue of our calling and our election. Now, as I said, there's an emphasis on some of these things today that more so than there would have been some years back. And there are those in the church world that believe that, that uh, God foreordains everything to the point that he foreordains some to be saved and some to be lost. And I don't know if you're familiar much with that kind of doctrine and teaching, but uh, the, the adherents to that, the students of that, have grown quite a bit in recent years. And uh, usually they call themselves Reformed, uh, you know, and they've, they've closely uh, adhered to uh, the doctrines and teachings of men like John Calvin, they are, they are Calvinists and believes, and, uh, you know, Martin Luther. And we do thank God for the Reformers, and we do thank God for the great uh, uh, leaders of the Protestant Reformation. But uh, how many of you know that the Apostle Paul knew more than John Calvin? How many of you know that the Apostle Peter knew more than Martin Luther? And so whatever we believe about salvation, and it's, it's a key. It is extremely important what we believe about salvation. The thing that matters is, does the Bible give us our basis for what we believe? Or are we just caught up into some intellectual idea of, of something that sounds good and sounds smart maybe? Or are we really believing the Bible? So I'm going to give you a little bit of information today. I'm not going to spend all morning about this, and you'll be glad I don't. But uh, I want to give you a few things to think about. Foreknowledge is not foreordination. Now, maybe at the beginning that doesn't seem to be so significant, but I want to say it again because I want you to understand that. God knows everything. God knows tomorrow better than you remember yesterday. Foreknowledge. Knowledge 
before something actually plays out on the earth. But foreknowledge is not foreordination. In other words, God does know whether or not someone will be saved. He knows whether or not they will be born again, whether or not they will serve him and live for him. God knows that. But God's not determining before they ever got here whether or not they would do so. Predestination is a word that comes to mind when you read these kind of phrases. And sometimes people get really tripped up about it. But let me try to simplify it as much as I can. I, I'm not a, uh, an intellectual, so everything I do has to be pretty simple. But um, I want you to think about this. Predestination simply means a destination that's planned in advance. Predestination is a destination planned in advance. Just like if I were to tell you at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to leave from the church here, and I'm going, I'm going to Roanoke. I mean, we go to Roanoke, might as well go to the Longhorn. Doesn't that sound pretty good? At 2 o'clock. And I, let's say I, I, I told you that's what I'm going to do, and I said, if you want to come and go with me, come, we'll, we'll, go have, we'll go have lunch or early supper or whatever you want to call it. Now, what do you know at this point? You know that I'm willing for you to go with me to a predetermined destination. You know the time. You know where we're going. You even know why we're going. And you're given the choice as to whether or not you go. That's what predestination is. There is a destination that God wants you to end up with at rather there is a whole lifestyle in that journey in that process whereby he has made every provision necessary including even the right people to come into your life to help you reach your destination but whether or not you meet me here at two o'clock and get in my car and go with me to Roanoke to the Longhorn and eat that steak is your choice and that's simply the way this whole salvation thing operates. A lot of people use this phrase, well, God is in control. Well, I think I know some of what they mean, but we need to be very careful about our terminology because especially with our kids, our young people, and, and with unbelievers that are out there in the world, because if we're not careful, we'll give them the idea that uh, God is running everything and that what they do or their choices has nothing to do with their destiny. That's not true. You and your choices, your will, your attitudes, your work, your preparation, all the rest is, is going to have so much to do with where you end up in life. Now your salvation to get to heaven was paid for by Jesus. He did all the work necessary. All you had to do was believe him to the point you would confess him as your Lord and he came in and made you a new creature. But the idea that God chooses some to be saved while he chooses others not to be saved is not a biblical doctrine. There's a term that, that folks in that camp use. They call it limited atonement. And what they mean by that is that 
Jesus didn't die for everybody. He just died for the, quote, elect. And if you're one of them or one of those, you can tell I didn't major in English. Uh, if you're one of those who are elect, then you're in luck. If you're not, you're going to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's the idea. And uh, even, even it affects their view of the Great Commission. The Great Commission, you know, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Well, their whole view of the uh, Great Commission is we go into all the world and we preach the gospel to every creature, but we don't know who's elect and who's not, so we preach to everybody, but the, elects, the elect ones will end up saved. And those who are not elect will end up in hell. But their belief is that God chooses all that. Now, I know that's extreme, and I know not everybody believes that. And I know there are various grades of that teaching in various groups within the body of Christ. And as I said, I don't want to take all day with it, but I want you to understand that when Peter said that we need to make our calling and election sure, there would be absolutely no reason for him to say that if your calling and election was out of your control. Why would the Holy Spirit lead Peter to write to us about making our calling and election sure if it's either sure or unsure based on God's decision only. This is the same man who wrote in his first epistle that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter understood and knew that there was a possibility that people could actually fall because he says here that if you do these things that he was talking about adding to your faith... He said, if you do these things, you shall never fall. And he also told us about um, people who uh, would uh, get entangled again. In chapter 2, he talks about it. So we're not going to actually turn there at this moment because we'll, we'll get over there soon enough. But he says that there are those who, get those who are believers, in other words, who get entangled again with the pollutions of this world. And he says that they're worse off than if they had never known the way. Well, if it doesn't matter, if it's all up to God, then, then what's the big deal, Peter? How many of you believe that he knew what he was talking about? Now, maybe Dr. So-and-so doesn't. I mean, I'm not against Dr. So-and-so, whoever that may be. But, but I know Peter knew what he was talking about. Not sure about everybody else, but I'm sure that he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So why would we need to make sure if it's a settled issue beyond our control? Amen. And I will say this because I've been ministering now for um, over 45 years. And so I've met a lot of people, a lot of wonderful people. And I've had the privilege to worship with many, many wonderful people. And so I'm saying this from experience, and I'm saying this because it's really true. Some of the most miserable people that I've ever known on earth are people we call backsliders. They're not miserable because they never knew the Lord, and they got caught up into some religious form or fashion, 
and then dropped out. They're miserable because they did know the Lord. They were walking with the Lord and they chose to walk away. And you can never, ever be at peace if you've known the Lord and you are choosing to live an ungodly life. When people that are what we call backsliders, when they are out doing what they do and they do their best to try to pretend to you that they're having a blast and that you don't need to pray for them and you don't need to be concerned about them because they're having the time of their life. This is what they always wanted to do and always wanted to be. You can know this, they're lying through their teeth. That's why you never quit praying for them. That's why you never quit witnessing when the Holy Spirit leads you. That's why you never quit speaking the Word of God over them. And you never quit binding the devil from them because that person that has known the Lord and then went back into the weak and beggarly elements of the world, as it's called, those people are never happy. And probably all of us know some folks in that situation. They may be family members. They may be distant relatives. They might be... Uh, co-workers, friends, people you grew up with, went to school with, whatever. But don't quit praying. Believe God to send laborers across their pathway. Keep the devil bound from them. Believe God to open their eyes. Amen. That they can make their calling and their election sure. Now, Peter moves on in verse 11 uh, connected with this, these other passages, of course. But he begins to move on just kind of quickly to um, talking about the death of believers. And, you know, we read through several of these verses. He's talking primarily about his own death. But uh, you can understand that, that this thought will cause you to want to make sure of your status. <laughs> Amen? You know, a lot of people are making plans, you know, for retirement. And you know they've got their exercise machine and they've got their broccoli and uh, they've got their uh, super duper mega vitamins and you know they're just they're just you know they're going around with their weights in their hand you know they're doing all that stuff they do and that's fine do it if you want to we'll pray for you uh, they're doing all of that and it's kind of like you know they're planning to live forever. No, you need to be planning that you're going to leave here. Not that that's all you think about. You don't get morbid over it, and you don't allow it to get you depressed. But you've got to make sure you're ready. Because when Peter talked about dying, there is no evidence of fear. There are no signs of fear. You've got to know this man experienced the glory of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Jesus glorified. He saw Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd seen the dead raised. He had, with his own ministry, had just his shadow passing by the sick had brought healing to them. He was there on the day of Pentecost. He preached one message, one simple gospel message, and 3,000 people got saved in one day. This man knew some stuff about the spiritual realm. This man knew something about Jesus Christ. This man knew something about redemption and forgiveness. And he knew something about power. And he had no fear of leaving this world. 
We know he was familiar with Paul's writings because he, would, he even mentioned Paul's letters in this very epistle that he wrote. And so he knew that it would be, I don't know if he had yet read Philippians 1.23, I don't know all the timeline of all of that, but he knew the same principle like Paul said in Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. So I'm going to take a minute here and talk about death and dying. You know, in a local church, we don't need to just hear about this when somebody actually dies. There's something about a dead body in front of the pulpit that kind of is a distraction. We need to learn about some of these things on occasion when everybody's alive and well. Look at your neighbor and check, make sure they're breathing, make sure their eyes are open. Amen. I think... And you don't have to agree with my thinking, but anyway, I would encourage you to at least give it a try. I think that in a large measure, we in the church world have not really understood physical death as we should from a biblical perspective. There, there's just like a light bulb that, that came on for me, a revelation, not all that long ago really, and I, it's, you know, sometimes spiritual revelations, they come so quickly, and you know what, it's like you know what you know, and then you have to go back and almost put the pieces together uh, to, to, to see what God is saying to you from Scripture. But it's just like uh, it really clicked in me that this whole thing of death, we're, we are not seeing both sides properly. We are majoring on our side, the side of the living. We are sensing our loss, and that's normal. We are grieving, that would be normal. We have sorrow, that's also normal, and even biblical. Paul said you sorrow not as others who have no hope. So there is a degree of sorrow. So we, we, I'm not saying we don't go through that. I'm not saying that that isn't um, normal. But what I am saying is that we can get so absorbed with our loss and our feelings and what seems to be, it's not, but it seems to be the finality of the death of someone we love that we forget and I know that even though preachers try to tell us at funerals, like I said, we're usually distracted. I don't know how many funeral messages anybody remembers. But what we forget is that the one who has died, for them, it is not the end. And I want to break this to you as nicely as I can. They ain't sad. <laughs> they are not in heaven Weeping and mourning, oh, I didn't want to leave him behind. I didn't want to leave her behind. No, they have moved into another gear. I mean, they have moved into a dimension of life that we really can't fully get our minds around here on the earth. This life and nature of God that came into us when we were born again, it, if you will, it explodes when we leave this body to take us to where it can take us without limitations. Right now, the life and nature of God in you has limitations, not because it's limited per se, but because of the house you're in. 
And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe even this day as we're rejoicing, maybe you couldn't jump high enough, run fast enough, or shout loud enough. There's something about the physical that brings limitations. And so, for the one who dies or goes to be with the Lord, it is not the end. It is a continuation of this God kind of life. And it is... Um, it's a, it's a continu continuation of the real life outside the limitations of this earthly body. The one who departs to be with the Lord, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 8, if you want to read that for yourself, never stops existing. The second they leave this physical body, they are in the presence of the Lord. And I'll tell you something they would not come back for anything here. They wouldn't. The one who departs to be with the Lord never stops existing, and they are existing where there is no sorrow, there's no grief, there is no pain, there is no lack, there is nothing of the curse that will ever touch them again. They, and remember when I'm talking about they, I'm talking about you and me, Someday, we will, maybe I should say it, continue in a level of God's life greater than we have ever experienced before. That doesn't mean that when people die, we just throw them in a hole and forget them. That doesn't mean we are rude, disrespectful, and ungrateful for their life and their testimony and all that they did to touch and affect us. I don't mean that. But I'm saying that when you really understand what the transition we call death is about for a Christian, then you understand that there really is nothing to be sorry about in, in, a, in a negative way. Now, we who are left, we have a loss, but not the one who goes on. Peter spoke of, in verse number 11 of this uh, first uh, chapter. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, or as we pointed out, gloriously, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are familiar, most of us at least, with Hebrews 12.1, the, the scripture that talks about the great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone on before us, those who are there waiting, as some people like to say it, in the grandstands. Of heaven, who we believe, since they are witnesses, obviously there's something about this life that they know. There's something about you, if, if, if they're connected to you, that perhaps they know. Not necessarily every detail. Nobody in heaven is concerned about what you had for supper. And I'll tell you, I made a pot of soup that was just out of this world. We, we had some soup that was out of this world. Anyway, but nobody in heaven's concerned about my soup. No, they're not. Listen, I want to say this to you. If, uh, if, if, if your spouse goes to be with the Lord before you do, and then you marry somebody else, they don't care. I mean... They love you and all, but they're not coming back for you. It's not going to happen. 
And so here's part of my revelation about death. Why should I live the rest of my life in a gloom and doom and depressed state while the one that I'm grieving over is having a blast? <laughs> Why would I do that? It doesn't even make sense. Now, again, I'm not saying be disrespectful. I'm not saying we forget about people that we've loved and known. But I'm just saying we need a right understanding of what death, physical death, really is. Amen. And so there is an abundant entrance. I started talking about that great cloud of witnesses. An abundant entrance, a glorious entrance. In other words, when people go to heaven, they must have the best greeter usher team in the world, Derek. Amen. You may be on that team one of these days because you do such a wonderful job. But can you imagine the greeting you get in heaven? Can you imagine the people you're going to see? I mean, I'm not trying to get you down in the dumps or anything. I'm trying to encourage you. But, I mean, there are people I'm going to see that I have not seen in years and years and years. And I'm going to be so glad to see them. And I believe, since they'll be there to welcome me, that they're glad to see me. And in the meantime, that cloud of witnesses evidently is informed, that, that would be what they're witnessing, of some of the things here on the earth. I don't mean communicating with the dead. I'm not getting off you know, outside the scriptures and some weird, goofy thing. But I'm just saying I believe the Lord lets them know of our spiritual progress. I believe there are people who know that I'm in ministry. I believe there are people who know things about you that are a blessing, that are good. And those witnesses are there ready to receive us when we come into the presence of the Lord. And I want to say one thing else about this before we move on. These witnesses, because they are with the Lord and they are in, a, in the right atmosphere, they are trained or retrained as the case may be when we get to heaven you know all the things we have to learn they want your life for God to be to the full they really do and so Peter was not moaning and groaning about having to go his biggest concern as you can tell from what we read here today was that the people he was leaving behind would get the message he was leaving behind. It wasn't about him. And he referred to his body as a tabernacle. I think the NIV refers to it as a tent. He had the right perspective. He knew that he wa his body wasn't him. His body was just his house. And he knew he was getting ready to leave the house to go to a better place. That's important to know. Amen. Now, Here's what we want to close with today. He, he went on from this to say in verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. So he's talking about the, the day of transfiguration. Well, you guys must really be hungry. 
<laughs> Woo, glory. So you understand, and I, I've covered this with you on other occasions, but you understand Peter was giving us a little bit of his um, qualifications for saying what he's saying. He's saying, I, I saw the glorified Jesus. I was there on that mountain. I saw the glory of God and I heard the voice of God. I mean, you just don't get much better than that. But notice what he says in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. And we're going to find when, as we continue to study this book that this word of prophecy he referred to here was not just a simple prophecy like Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, of an utterance in a service that speaks to men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. But here, Peter's actually talking about the Scriptures, prophecy of Scripture, the Word of God. He said, we also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. So he's referring to Scriptures. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed. And here's what he says the Bible does for us. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And then he goes on to say some other things about the Scripture. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture. So we would be perfectly safe to say, no Scripture, no verse of the Bible, no part of your Bible is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy or the scriptures or the word came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved, or the Amplified says impelled by the Holy Ghost. I pointed out some weeks back in another message from this, this particular passage you know how a pump has what's called an impeller. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And not a propeller, an impeller. The water is pulled through and forced out. And so it is with Scripture that came, the Word of God, it came through people and was pushed out by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And God's Word was written after it had been first spoken by God, then written down. And with it being written, like you have a copy of in your lap there today, then we can lift it from the page and we can speak it again and again and again. And it has the same power that it always had. What it meant when the writer wrote it it still means today. This is God talking to us. This is God revealing himself to us. These promises, these provisions that are spelled out, they are done so in a legal fashion. It is an unalterable and unchanging covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, 
If you find it in here and it's for you as a believer, then it's as much for you as it was for the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, or any other person you've ever known or known of on the planet. Hallelujah. The various writers who wrote the Bible over centuries in various locations where they would write, they have never contradicted each other. And may I add, certainly there's no disagreement between any of the Bible writers and the Lord Jesus. The reason I say that is because in today's world we have all these people trying to tell us, well, Jesus didn't say anything about whatever, so Paul did, so I'm going to go with Jesus. And somebody says, no, you know, Jesus and Paul never contradicted each other. Nobody contradicted Jesus as far as scripture writings. And may I add this, and then we're going to go in just a moment. Any doctrine that makes allowance for continued and unrepentant sin is false doctrine. The final authority for us in judging any message, any teaching, even any activity that we want to do, the final authority is the, is the message, God's Word, your Bible. That's what Peter said right before he died. He said, I've seen a lot of stuff. I've experienced the miraculous beyond, I'm sure, more than any, almost maybe anybody that was, uh, that was reading his letter in that day. He said, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. So I thank God for gifts of the Spirit. I thank God for the supernatural, like these healing testimonies this morning. How wonderful. But you know, it all comes back to the Word. The reason we can believe for these things is because it's in the book. And if you will make this Bible your more sure word, more sure than the word of a trusted friend, more sure than the word of a doctor, a lawyer, a, a judge, a, a politician, that's not hard, but, uh, you know, of anybody, I can tell you if you'll make this your final authority. Your life will be so blessed. And you can have an abundant entrance into the heavenly kingdom. When all this is over, all that we've been working for and all that we've been looking forward to, it'll be ours. Father, we just thank you for your word today. Thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your kindness to us. Lord, I... I have done my best to deliver what I believe you wanted me to bring to the people of God today, and I now trust you to take that which we've heard, cause it to be a good seed in our heart that will produce an abundant harvest. And I thank you and I praise you, Lord, because you will do what your word says you'll do. You are who your word says you are. <coughs> Just as we can do what your word says we can do and we are who your word says we are I give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus could you just lift up your hands and begin to worship God for his unchanging word <laughs> thank God for his marvelous covenant of blood thank you Lord for your Thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
We worship you, we bless you, we praise you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody listening to me that doesn't know you, if there's anybody not walking in fellowship with you, I just ask that right now they would call upon you, whether they're in this room or in their home or wherever they may be, that they would ask you to forgive and cleanse their sins, that they would confess as their Lord, their Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who loved me and gave himself for me and was raised from the dead so that I could have that same life, that I could have that same position as a full-fledged child of God, that I could be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, that I could enjoy His name, His power, His authority, His wealth, His blessing. And so, Lord, I thank You that anyone who chooses to believe on you and to call upon you today as their Lord and Savior, that they will be saved, they will be changed. And Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. If you prayed that prayer, then please come to the front when this service is over. We'd like to talk with you further. We have people who would like to pray with you and give you information. If you did it while you're watching at home or somewhere, please contact us.